for them. John 18, we're, uh, as you remember, Jesus just prayed. He prayed for believers. He prayed for his disciples in John 17. Basically, the whole chapter of John 17 is a prayer. Jesus has prayed for you and for me. Now we find John 18 and verse number 1, Jesus is, uh, as he, as, after he had spoken to the Father, Jesus is now in the Garden of Gethsemane. They go over the, book, the brook Kidron. It's, 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 uh, in, in John's Gospel, it's, it's, I guess, pronounced or spelled C-E-D-R-O-N, but it's actually K-I-D-R-O-N in modern day. And in other Gospels, it's the Kidron Valley. If you go there today in Jerusalem, between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem, you'll see a valley with a brook down by it. And off to the left there will be the Garden of Gethsemane. And up on the hill will be the Mount of Olives looking from Jerusalem. This would have been exactly the way it would have looked in Jesus' day with a beautiful valley and a brook that flowed right right through the middle of it. And this is where Jesus is with his disciples. And we'll see later that Jesus would often go to this garden. Matter of fact, it's my favorite place in Israel. I've been to Israel twice and both times over there, my favorite spot. And people ask me when I get back, Pastor, what was your favorite thing about Israel? My favorite spot was the Garden of Gethsemane. Because of this particular text, Jesus is in the garden Now, there's something that happens in the garden. There's a betrayal that happens, and that's mainly what we'll uh, speak about today, the betrayal. Judas betrays Jesus Christ right here in the garden of Gethsemane. Now, notice verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. Centuries before this actually took place, a king by the name of David, King David, had quickly crossed the Kidron Valley and traveled across the brook. His own son, Absalom, had betrayed him and the nation had rejected him. And now, here in John 18, another king has crossed this brook and yet he's betrayed by a disciple, a follower by the name of Judas. And by the way, both of those deniers, both of those betrayers were hung in a tree. I find that interesting. Jesus crosses the Kidron Valley. And there's another fact that I find interesting about this text, the time of these events that we're reading about and preaching through is the Passover celebration. Already thousands of lambs have been offered in sacrifice that week-long ceremony. Each family would bring a lamb and it would be slaughtered and that blood would be applied and they would take that meat and go and, and have a Passover meal, if you will, with their family celebrating the Passover in Exodus. And the blood of the lambs would have ran down the trenches out of uh, Jerusalem and into that brook and that brook would turn red every year with the blood of those lambs. Jesus would have Across that brook, over that red brook, where the blood of lambs would be slain, only for a few days later to have his blood run down Calvary's hill. And by the way, the final lamb, the ultimate lamb, that was slain for our salvation. Thirty years after Christ, they took a census, and it was 256,000 lambs that was slain in one week. Could you imagine the blood? Could you imagine what that brook looked like when Jesus crossed over into the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus would cross for the final time 
before his death. I want you to notice some things about the lamb that was betrayed this morning in John 18, the lamb that was betrayed. Uh, The first thing we come to is the betrayal of Judas. It's a ridiculous betrayal. But but the betrayal of Judas. Look with me in verse number 2. The Bible says, And Judas also which betrayed him knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. He oft times, that means he would frequently go with his disciples. He would go there maybe to teach a little bit. He would go there to, to, to spend time with them. He would go there to pray often. And Jesus went to this garden. Judas knew that Jesus would be in that garden when he came. And Judas was a character that I have a hard time with. Now, we've already preached. I'm not going to re-preach Judas Iscariot. We preached a whole message of... Uh, several months ago about Judas in the upper room and what Judas did and how he was the, uh, the, basically the treasurer of the disciples. But I have a hard time with Judas because he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. That's exactly what someone would have paid for a slave in those days. Matter of fact, I read somewhere where someone purchased a slave that had been, uh, that had been gorded by an ox or crippled by an ox for 30 pieces of silver. So Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver on what someone would have uh, paid for a crippled slave. Not much money, is it? It goes to show you that Judas did not think highly of Jesus. But frankly, Judas is one of those Bible characters that is so misunderstood. I read recently about an author who, who wrote this about Judas. He said, I've always pictured Judas as a wiry, beady-eyed, wormy fellow, pointed beard and all. I've pictured him as strange from his other apostles, friendless, distant. Undoubtedly, he was a traitor. Yet we have no evidence that would suggest that he was isolated. At the Last Supper, when Jesus said that he was the betrayer, who his betrayer sat at the table, we don't find the apostles immediately turning to Judas as the logical traitor. I think we, we peg Judas wrong. Instead of sly and wiry, maybe he was robust and juvial. Maybe he would win you over with his personality. He had watched miracles unfold. He, he, and by the way, the truth is, Judas did not know The heart of uh, uh, Jesus did not know, uh, or rather Judas did not know the heart of Jesus. Judas could not know the heart of Jesus. And by the way, can I say this? He knew the actions of Jesus, but he missed out on the mission of Jesus. He he, uh, wore the garments of religion, but he had no relationship with Jesus. And by the way, that still exists today. There's people that know about church, but they don't know God. They know about the Bible, but they don't know the God of the Bible. They have the rules, but they don't have the relationship. Judas had all of that. Matter of fact, we notice verse 3. Judas then having received a band of men, which is a garrison or a, a battalion of men, I believe is the proper word, a battalion of men. About 600 men in a battalion would be an estimate. So Judas takes these 600 men and officers from the chief priests of the Pharisees and they come thither, the Bible says, with lanterns and torches and weapons. Why these three things? Lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, let me remind you, they're looking for one man. They're looking for a man who had never hurt nobody. 
They're looking for a man who had never sinned. They're looking for a man, not Barabbas. They're not looking for Peter. They're not looking for someone that has a record. They're looking for one man who had never hurt nobody. A man that had never picked up a sword and stabbed anybody. A never that had never really had never defended himself. Jesus, they're looking for him, and they bring 600 men with lanterns, torches, and the Bible says weapons. They were prepared for deception. They were prepared for someone to step in and say, no, don't take him, take me. They were maybe thinking that Jesus would run off. Maybe he was going to be a coward and they were going to bring lanterns and torches to go, look, let me just say, if it was me and I was in the garden and I knew 600 men were coming to put me to death, I'd be hiding somewhere, amen. I would be going somewhere. They would have to look for me for a while, but that's not what Jesus did. And the Bible says that Jesus was kissed on the cheek by Judas. The word used in this verse for kiss is the word cataphilio. It is intensified word for affection. A close embrace. We in our culture, we hug a term of inv- or, or a sign of inv- affection, endearment. We would hug someone. We'd, we would uh, we'd put our arm around their shoulder. But in Jesus' time, in this Jewish culture, they, they, they kissed the cheek or they kissed the back of the hand. It was a sign of affection. And Jesus was kissed by Judas. And thus the kissing of Judas was despicable. Because think about this, church. Judas was possessed by Satan. Satan had entered into Judas. So imagine as well the spiritual truth here, the the utter deceit. You have Satan identifying the Savior. You have the serpent embracing the sun. You have a lion clutching the lamb. You have the hot breath of the old dragon upon the cheek of mankind's deliverer. Think about it. It's not just a man. Judas is possessed by Satan. Betrayal is always a terrible thing, but when it comes with a kiss, in other words, when it comes from a loved one, when it comes from someone close to you, a supposed friend, a relative, especially heartbreaking, when you thought someone loved you and they sell you out, you would think Jesus would have looked at Judas and said, get away from me. Get away from me. I've served you all these years. I've helped you. You've stayed in the same home with me. You, we've camped out together. You've seen miracles happen. We've ate together. We, we have done all these things together. Get away from me, you traitor. But Jesus doesn't say that. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus called him friend. Friend. Ken Hughes makes the application that Jesus did not just say, love your enemies and pray for them that despitefully use you. Jesus lived it. He showed us. Every one of us in here today has been hurt or will be hurt by someone close to us. Or or you may be hurt by someone that you didn't see coming. I'm not sure, but let me just say this. Instead of you harboring bitterness in your heart, instead of you not forgiving them and, and holding grudges and holding things, hey, why don't you do what Jesus did? Call them friend and pray for them. Oh, it's easy. Listen, it's easy to say. It's hard to do, but Jesus did it. We're called to Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5. He said, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, how he humbled himself. Hey, he was a man of humility. Jesus did not come to be king. He did not come to make a reputation of himself. He humbled himself. He went to the cross. He fulfilled the will of the Father, and he forgave. He forgave. The second thing I think they maybe expected was not just deception, but cowardice. As I said, they maybe expected Jesus to run. The Passover was a full moon. Well, you could see... Why would they bring all these lights and lanterns? Why would they bring 600 men? They expected Jesus maybe to flee. But I believe the third thing they expected was maybe resistance. Look at verse 3. The Bible says, Judas then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees cometh thither with lanterns, torches, and weapons. That Roman cohort, a battalion, 600. They anticipated resistance. They anticipated maybe him to do something supernatural. They, they anticipated maybe uh, something that he was going to do. They had heard of his miracles. They knew that he would maybe do something, but they were not prepared for what would happen. We see Judas the betrayer, how ridiculous. But we also see the announcement of Jesus, how revealing. The announcement of Jesus. Look at verse 4. The Bible says, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth. And said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Now you need to understand this more than simply identifying him. Jesus was doing something when he said, I am he. What was Jesus announcing? The first thing he was announcing was his deity. Jesus was saying in verse 5 and verse 6, he's responding and identifying himself as I am. Do you remember over in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14 when Moses asked the Lord, what shall I tell the people? And he said, tell them that I am sent you. The I am. Oh, what's the I am? It's the ego emi. It is the I am. I am the I am. I am God in the flesh, the deity. And by the way, when he said it, the Bible says that they drew back, they fell backwards to the ground. God himself opened just a little bit. Jesus just let them peek into a little bit of his omnipotence and his power. And as soon as they got a glimpse of the power of God, they could not handle it and they fell back. Listen, that shows you how powerful our God is. It shows you how powerful Jesus is. He revealed his deity, but number two, he revealed his authority. May I remind you about this situation that Jesus is in command here. He's in command here the whole time. Make no mistake about it. No one is going to take his life. He has chosen to give it up. He is, he is not hiding. He's revealing. He's not cowering. He's in command. He even helps his frightened uh, men catch him. He helps them. They said, who are you looking for? And he said, I'm here. Here I am. That doesn't look like someone guilty of anything, does it? But Jesus was in complete control of the whole situation. Hey, the third thing is he, feels, he fulfills his word. Look at verse 7. Then ask he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, after they stood up now, remember this, they, they stood up. 
first time they fell to the ground. He says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. Who's these? The disciples. He says, I want you to let my men go. Why? Well, look at verse 9. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spake in, in just a chapter previously. Verse 12. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. He said this in verse 9. He said it in verse 12 of the previous chapter. Of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. Listen. They wasn't to put 12 men on the cross. There was only one cross, and Jesus was going to die on that cross. The time wasn't for the disciples to die. Their time, of course, would come later, but it wasn't their time. And by the way, those men and those Sanhedrin wasn't after the disciples right now. They were after Christ. And Jesus said, this is that it fulfilled the word. I've come that this might be fulfilled. Here's the third thing I see in our text this morning is the courage of Peter. The courage of Peter. He was reckless, but I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by his reckless spirit. Look at verse 10. After Jesus is identified, after Jesus steps forward and says, I am he, after he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, you're looking for him, you found him. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest, the servant's ear, uh, or cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now Peter, he'd been standing close. He'd been watching this whole situation. Now either Peter was one of two things. Either he was a bad shot or Malchus dodged. I'm not sure. I don't think that uh, Peter uh, had any intentions of just cutting an ear off. I don't think he took the verse literally, he that hath an ear, let him hear. I think he was just aiming for the head and missed. And severely, the Bible says, severely cut his right ear off. Now stop here for just a moment. We are so often talk about the weaknesses and the faithlessness and the cowardice of Peter. I've heard messages where Peter's pretty run, he's run through the ringer a little bit and people give Peter a hard time. And I will say that Peter sometimes got his mouth before his emotions and or got his emotions before his mouth rather and would say stuff and hurt people and hurt himself and not really think things through. But right here, Peter's motives, I believe, was right. Peter said, hey, you're going to grab Jesus. I love him. You don't know what he's done for me. And grabs a sword and said, if you're going to hurt him, you have to go through me. And he goes right after the main guy. Now think about this for a second. Peter had every intention of fighting all 600 men. I mean, he knew what would happen. He knew the moment he'd draw his sword out and go after the main guy that all them others would take their spears and their swords out and point them right into the chest of Peter. I'm not sure where Peter got his courage from, but he got courage. And I'll be really honest with you. At this moment, he drew his sword against hundreds Peter is recklessly prepared to take on hundreds. He's prepared to even die for Christ's sake. Would to God we'd have some Peters in this sense, in this time that would take a stand for Christ and say, no matter what it costs me, I'm going to stand. Hey, Peter, hey, I thank God for him. I thank God that he stood at this time. Now, he gets rebuked a little bit. He was a little reckless in his dealings with Malchus. 
But Peter swings, the servants scream, soldiers pull out all their swords, and they're going to get Peter. Now what happens? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, All four Gospels record this instance of Jesus in the garden. Look with me in Matthew 26 and pick up in verse number 52. Same story, same place, but a different viewpoint from Matthew. Here's what Matthew said in verse 52. Then said Jesus unto him, now talking to Peter, put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Verse 53, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legion of angels? Peter, what are you doing pulling out a sword against these men? Do you not know that the Father that I just spoke to, just uh, the previous chapter, do you not know that I could pray to him and at my disposal have 72,000 angels at my side? What's that little piece of metal you hold in your hand going to do? Peter, put that sword back. Peter, we're not fighting this battle with steel swords. If we were, I could have right now called angels at my disposal. And by the way, the Apostle Paul, he picked up this theme as he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God, through the pulling down of strongholds. Ephesians chapter 6, I believe it is, and verse number 12, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Hey, Jesus knew that this was not a battle that would be fought with cannons and swords and spears and bows, but this was a battle that was spiritual. By the way, can I remind you that our battle is not physical today. Our battle is spiritual. Do you know what Jesus did and said to the mob? Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 22, right before the Gospel of John. Luke 22. Here's what Jesus said to this mob of soldiers. Luke 22, and we'll pick up in verse number 53. We'll just read verse 52 for sake of time. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and captains of the temple and elders which were come to him, By ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hand against me. But notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 53. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus looked at the mob and says, You're having your day right now. You're having your hour right now. But the hour will come. And it will end, and my hour will still be here. And by the way, the day in which we live, the world is having their hour. The government is having their hour. Hollywood is having their hour. The God-haters are having their hour. The God-deniers are having their hour. But can I say this one day, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess. The hour will come that Jesus will stand We know that hour has come. And Jesus says they're having their hour. The power of darkness. Warren Wearsby said this, Peter was fighting the wrong enemy, using the wrong weapon, having the wrong motive, accomplishing the wrong task. Look what Luke 22, look at verse 50. 
Luke 22 and verse 50, the Bible says, And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Luke's a little bit more detailed. John says an ear. Luke says his right ear. Verse 51, And Jesus answered his, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now I've always assumed, and probably like you, that Jesus stooped down and picked up that ear and stuck it on the side of his head. But the Bible doesn't say that in all four Gospels. Now you would think out of four men writing that one of them would have said Jesus stooped down and picked up that bloodied, mangled ear and stuck it on the side of his head. That's not what the Bible says. It says that he touched his ear. The noun used in verse 51, it's interesting. It refers to the ear. It differs from verse 50 in Luke 22. It actually refers to the place of the ear. Now, I, I'm just reading here, and again, whether it, he picked it up and put it on the side of his head or whether he touched the side of his head, uh, it really doesn't matter. Both would be a miracle and both would be wonderful. But Jesus, who is the I Am, who can create something out of nothing, Jesus who was there at creation. Jesus was there when God said, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus said, hey, let's create Adam and make him in our own likeness. And, and he was there. Listen, Jesus who could touch the side of Malchus's head and an ear, a new ear began. I'd like to think that Jesus touched that ear. And, and think about Malchus for just a moment. What does he do after that? He was the first to have miracle ear. Dun, dun, dun. That's a dad joke if you don't know it. But I guarantee Malchus was told, don't you dare say a word. Don't you dare say a word. We don't want this getting out that Jesus healed you. We don't want, uh, we don't want us to look bad in the eyes of Jerusalem. That we've done put someone to death that had healed a man. Perhaps sometime later he put his faith in the Lamb of God. I'm not sure, but I'd have a hard time not putting my faith in someone that healed me. Here's the last thing, and I'm through. Look with me in verse 11 of John 18. The Bible says, Then Jesus said unto Peter, Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath. Now here's where I'm, here's where I'm at. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? I want to focus on the perspective of Jesus. The perspective of Jesus. He resigned to His will, but to the Father's will. I want you to see the perspective of Jesus. You're not about to read the perspective that allowed Jesus to model handling betrayal with composure. This was what would enable him to face an angry mob and never scream at them and never condemn them, never shake his fist at them. This shows us how to deal with the mistreatment of society. But then he, he, he says something about a cup, the cup of his father. The drinking of a cup was often used in Scripture to illustrate experiences of suffering and sorrow. Matter of fact, we find that when Babylon captured Jerusalem, the city drank from the cup of trembling. It was a bad time. It was a sorrowful time. In Jeremiah in chapter 25, God pictures His wrath against the nation by pouring out a cup 
a cup in Scripture usually symbolized uh, some suffering or some chastisement, some wrath. And Jesus says in verse 11 that I'm going to drink from the cup that my Father has given me. To drink the cup means to go through a difficult experience. That's why we get that little saying today, that's not my cup of tea. I I don't do that. That's just not my cup of tea. Many trophies that are won uh, in professional sports today are designed like a cup because they had to go through perseverance. They had to go through suffering. They had to go through a trial to get that glory. They had to go through that to the, the, the trials and the, and the uh, tough games and the tough conditions to get that cup. And Jesus is saying, the cup in which I'm about to drink is from the Father. Jesus now refers to all the sufferings that He is about to have and experience as a cup that he must drink. How was Jesus able to accept and drink from his cup? Verse 11 tells us. Look at it with me. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus' perspective was perfect in that he recognized that the cup was not handed to him by humans. The cup was not served by the angry mob. The cup was not given to him by Satan. The cup belonged to the Father. Jesus saw, listen to this, don't miss it. Jesus saw the Father behind everything. When Judas betrayed him, he didn't just see Judas, he saw the Father. Why? Prophecy had to be fulfilled. He did not see the angry mob that came down to the garden. He saw the Father. We one time had a little calendar that sat on our, uh, little, just a little flip calendar that sat on our uh, counter, and it said this, the eyes of faith are simply eyes that are able to see the hand of God behind everything. Jesus saw the hand of God behind everything. Jesus could handle betrayal, pain, suffering because he could see the hand of the Father giving him the cup. Jesus, it's time. Your hour has come. Here's the cup of my wrath. Here's the cup. I want you to take it. I know it's going to hurt. I know it's going to be disappointing. I know it's going to be suffering, but here it is. Everything that Jesus went through the cup. C.S. Lewis wrote this, at the heart of the obedient life is submission to the sovereignty of God. Seeing the hand of God behind everything. What is it in your life this morning that you say, Pastor, I just hate this in my life. I hate this thing. I've heard people say I hate cancer and I, I can't imagine watching my wife go through cancer, even myself being diagnosed with cancer. But listen, it changes your perspective when you see the hand of God behind it. It changes everything. Why? Because the Father is right there. I think about people that are moving and doing God's will. Don't just look at it as a relocation. Don't just look at it as a, well, i got to go through this. No, look at it like this is given to me from the Father. 
One writer put it this way, even in the valleys of the shadow of death, even when the darkness of the forest around us oppresses, even when we find ourselves in a wilderness experience, face to face with the devil himself, even in the dark, we seek to trust the sovereignty of God. When we can't see it, just because it's dark, just because it's dark outside, just because it's a dark time in which we live does not mean God is not doing His greatest work. Sometimes you say, Pastor, it's so foggy, I don't know what the next step is. I don't know where the next turn is. Can I just say, that's when God is often the closest and the nearest. What an example. What an example that Jesus Christ was for us. Are you in the valley this morning? Have you been betrayed? Are you rejected? Do you suffer? Listen, do not be afraid. The cup of the Father has been mixed and handed to you directly by Him. Oh, don't be afraid of it. The old American slogan is rather interesting. It says, if you have peace with anyone around you, or it says, if you have peace with anyone around you, Uh, When everyone around you is in panic, maybe you don't understand the problem. Well, take a good look inside the garden. I'll say this, when everybody's freaking out and you see somebody calm as a cucumber, can I just tell you this? They probably know God and know the situation pretty good. Y'all remember just three years ago when the whole world was falling apart and we didn't know what to do and things were shutting down and everybody flipping out. We'd never seen nothing quite like that. People were fearful. People were, and listen, I I didn't know. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I understood the situation. I know looking back, I understand it a little bit more now, but looking ahead or while we're in it, we don't understand it. But listen, the most calm people, the most calm people that you would ever see or be a part of were the Christian people that had faith. The legacy of the Lamb from inside this garden, it is he lived what he promised in John chapter 14. He says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Jesus gave peace. Do you have peace this morning? Where are you in this garden scene with Jesus? Are you the mob of rejectors? I hope that you won't come in here this morning and say, I don't need that Jesus that you preach. I don't need, I don't believe that stuff, or I don't need that right now. I hope that's not you this morning. I hope you're not Judas. You say, oh, I'd never be Judas, but let me just ask you this. Are you only a Christian on Sunday? Because if you're not, if you are uh, only a Christian on Sunday, and then you're somebody else on Monday, you're more than likely a Judas. Do you identify with Peter? Are you convinced that the Lord needs your protection? May I remind you, He does not need your protection. He just wants your heart. Or can you identify with the Lord? Forgiving, peaceful, willing to drink from the cup of the Father. And let me just say this, that's not an easy message to preach because none of us wants the cup. Nobody wants the cup of suffering. Nobody. A failed marriage. Wayward children. Disease. Pain. 
abandonment. Nobody wants that. But can I say this this morning, that behind every bit of the suffering, you can see the hand of God. He's with you. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He'll stay there with you. I'm thankful for that garden scene. Oh, it's, it's just now getting started. But will you go with me there just for a few minutes in your prayer and let the Lord examine your heart and say, Lord, where was it that you spoke to me? Or where am I in this story? Where do I fit in? There's four different people in this story, four different views. Where am I?